But I think it was just sort of decided six months in, she wasn't good. And it wasn't necessarily something that was written down. And I just think it has infiltrated. And I've, I mean, she has had weak interviews at certain points, but it just doesn't, it has never struck me as meeting the cool kids table discussion inside of Washington about her. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, September 19th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about the increasing likelihood of a government shutdown driven by right-wing forces in Congress who are gunning to undermine House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Abby and I also chat about the dress code in the Senate being relaxed, allowing John Fetterman to walk around the Capitol in a hoodie and shorts. And we look at the possibility, however slight, of Joe Biden dumping Kamala Harris from the Democratic ticket in 2024. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. We are talking politics today with Abby Livingston. Abby, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Peter? It is officially fall. We have a presidential campaign in full swing, even though it's really heading in Donald Trump's direction on the Republican side. We have gossip in Washington about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And I wrote in The Best and the Brightest yesterday, which everyone should read, about the prospect of Joe Biden dumping Kamala Harris from the 2024 ticket. I don't think that's realistic at all, but people are talking about it. But more pressingly, Abby, in Washington, there is the prospect of a government shutdown led by the MAGA wing of the House Republican Caucus. They do not like Kevin McCarthy very much. Uh, It doesn't seem like a lot of people like Kevin McCarthy these days. Abby, before getting into the nitty gritty of the negotiations here, what's actually happening with the government shutdown? is Is it all but certain that that's where we're going at this point? I would not be planning to visit a national park in October. And you can see the behavior on Capitol Hill. Chiefs of staff are starting to figure out which employees are essential, which ones are not. I've used this metaphor, I think, on this podcast in the past, but it has that feel of a hurricane and people are putting plywood on the windows that this is coming and it's it's coming straight for Washington. And why is it coming? It is coming because September 30th is the end of the fiscal year, which is when at midnight money runs out for the government and the Republican controlled Congress or House of Representatives uh, has not been able to pass a spending measure of any sort that can get through the Republican, get enough Republican votes to pass. But also they do not seem to be at this point able to pass a bill that could get through the Senate as well, which is an even harder lift. So this is a consequence of Republicans taking control over the House. And, you know, I think we could have predicted this on January uh, 3rd. Yeah, it's really felt like the dynamics were there for this to happen. You know, the minute (laughs) Kevin McCarthy became speaker, really, if there is a path out of a government shutdown, according to your reporting, also in the best and the brightest on Monday, one of the key figures is Texas Congressman 
Chip Roy, a member of the Freedom Caucus. He is a thorn in McCarthy's side, but he is also, you know, an outspoken conservative that a lot of Democrats kind of like. I mean, and look, for for their if we're going to avoid a government shutdown, there's going to have to be some kind of agreement theoretically between House Democrats and House Republicans, enough of them at least to avoid it. Where does Chip Roy figure into all of this? Because, I mean, he seems like he's as right wing as it gets. He is as right wing as it gets. He's a contrarian. Uh, He's somewhat of a (laughs) troublemaker. It's been a fascinating thing because it's come up in conversations unsolicited. I'll be talking to a Democratic source and then suddenly they'll get quiet and they'll remember that I used to cover uh, the Texas congressional (laughs) delegation and they'll say, what do you think of Chip Roy? I think I like him. And it has been happening for like two years now. And it's Hmm. they see him as not a nihilist. He is not trying to burn the house down. He does cause problems, but he's pretty sincere in what he's trying to convey and his logic, whereas you can see other Republicans sort of pander and jump around and try to get the right uh, no, mm-hmm. but Chip Roy kind of does what he wants to do and sort of follows through. And I just want to be super clear. It's not like Democrats like what he does or a lot of things that he says, but they just have a personal respect for him that I really don't hear them talk about with any other House members. He can be a troublemaker, but he's also the one who can kind of deal and sort of help McCarthy out of uh, negotiate his way out of that specific situation, which is what he's effectively did during the speaker's vote. Right. And I mean, like I, you wrote about this, too. But one reason and I remember this, too, Democrats kind of like him is he he actually voted to certify Joe Biden's election back in 2021. And he's not he's not a dummy. Like he went to he went to UVA. He has a law degree from a little from school University at the Texas. University of Texas. <laughs> That's right. He's a he's a Texas ex, just like you work for Perry, work for Ted Cruz. I, like, again, like he doesn't he doesn't seem, you know, like a political terrorist necessarily. You know, he seems like an actual just principled conservative <laughs> of the kind that existed kind of before Donald Trump came along. Now, what I will say is that there are Republicans who love Kevin McCarthy. They are tend to not be moderates, although some moderate, I mean, yes. And they tend to not be the Freedom Caucus, but the Hmm. the ones who are with McCarthy all the way are incredibly irritated with Chip Roy. And I wrote that Mm -hmm. you can almost hear the the way they pronounce his name with their teeth clenched. So it's Chip Roy. It's just very intense. (laughs) I want to talk about something else going on on Capitol Hill, which is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, has apparently directed the Senate's sergeant at arms to no longer enforce the uh, dress code, whether this is written down anywhere or not, for members. And the reason I think we're talking about this and paying attention is that lately, Senator John Fetterman, who's you know known for wearing Carhartts and hoodies on the campaign trail, has been showing up to the Senate uh, after his leave of absence for for mental health treatment, also wearing you know shorts and a hoodie, like while walking around the Capitol. There are some pearl clutchers on Twitter and a lot of, you know, dorks in Washington who like the same kind of people who probably sneered at Obama for wearing a tan suit one time who are complaining that, you know, this is ridiculous. But did Schumer do this specifically to accommodate Fetterman? That's what it appears to be. And, you know, I will in a certain amount throw myself in with the pearl clutchers in the sense of when I came, I briefly worked for Kay Bailey Hutchison, the senator from Texas. I answered phones for her. And if I recall correctly, I was 
we were inclined to wear nylons as women. And when we wore dresses, when the Senate was in session, like this mm-hmm. is not a place with casual Friday. This is a place where people wear suits that have been dry cleaned. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I injured myself in the congressional softball game. And the next day I wore Chuck Taylor's and got in trouble. I do think that like the world has changed since then. And a lot of senators have been dressing down. Kirsten Cinema has worn a denim vest and it is a sign of things changing. But I do think that there is, I, I will clutch my pearls a bit in that I, I do think when you walk into the U.S. Capitol, there is a feeling that comes over you. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, I always kind of took that seriously, both as a briefly staffer and as a reporter. But yes, so it, this is this is a pretty big shift in how the Senate does business, even in a very small way. And it may not seem like a big deal outside of the Capitol. And to be clear, I believe this only applies to elected officials. Uh, staffers still have to dress up. Like, in other words, you couldn't a, a, a male staffer for John Fetterman it can't suddenly walk around wearing like a Penn State hoodie and, and cargo shorts. It, it might not go over well, but what I will say is, and we'll talk about her in a bit, but it was a big deal when uh, then Senator Kamala Harris wore Chuck Taylor's to the Capitol because uh, the marble floor is hard and uh, that sort of made it okay for women to have flatter shoes. So that's that's the the, fa- the fashion report of the, the Senate. That is change you can believe in. I want to take a quick break, Abby, and talk more about Kamala Harris actually after the break. And all of this chatter going around mostly by pundits and columnists, really, about Biden dumping her from the ticket in 2024. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. We're talking politics with Abby Livingston, our favorite Texan here at Puck. So, Abby, Kamala Harris, a bunch of columnists lately, New York Magazine's Eric Levitz, uh, Josh Barrow and his Substack, David Ignatius, white men, just like me, <laughs> have been pontificating lately that Biden needs to get rid of Kamala and appoint someone else. Josh Barrow said Gretchen Whitmer uh, as his running mate in 2024. The, the reasoning here, there's two things. One, Biden is old. So the question of who will succeed him if something bad happens, if he steps aside, whether during the campaign cycle or if he gets reelected when he becomes president, becomes more important. You know, people are thinking about the vice president as a successor way more than they normally would because Biden is so old. And the second reason is that Kamala Harris is really unpopular. Uh, And there are a lot of sort of sub threads to that. Has she proven herself to be a captivating, dynamic vice president, you know, as if other vice presidents <laughs> aren't just sort of forgotten and put in the corner when they be, uh, when they come into office. Basically, the Democrats really need to do as much as possible to excite the base uh, next year because, man, Biden's approval ratings are not very good right now, especially on the economy. Abby, is there any like real discussion among elected officials in Washington that you've talked to? Anyone on the Hill, strategists like that think this is a real possibility? No, um, I do think the two things that have come up, one is gaming out what happens if Biden is not able to run as the president and the timing of Mm -hmm. that and how that could impact things Um, before the convention, after the convention, will this set off a wild primary? It's not a huge topic of conversation, but it is in the back of minds. What I think has accelerated and 
probably just the last two weeks is Democrats who adore Joe Biden, who are starting to talk about his age in a way that I've never mm-hmm. heard before. So I think that's what mm-hmm. set it, is setting it off. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that I kind of have a hard time wrapping in my head around with Vice President Harris is Democrats have this habit, and I'm not sure if I see it in the m- most recent columns. I've not read all the ones you listed, but they will beat to a pulp a politician in their party behind columnists or news articles. And to mm. an extent, they did this to Vice President Biden in 2000 or in, in Double Down, I believe, or Game Change, I can't remember, or Double Down, which you put in your mm-hmm. article. Do you sense that's what's going on here? Or do you think it's just columnists pontificating? I really do think it's mostly bored columnists. I know maybe that's like a too much of a media criticism, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, people have space and column inches to fill, as they used to say. And I just don't get the sense that any establishment oriented Democrat in Washington is talking about this or wants this. Uh, You know, my conversations with the White House were pretty dismissive about this. But more to the point, Abby, there's just no precedent for this. Like it doesn't it doesn't happen. And every Every time an incumbent president is heading into re-election, the year before, or even like early part of the election year, this happens. I mean, and I, I went back and looked. Like this mm-hmm. happened to uh, Mike Pence. It happened to Joe Biden. It happened to Al Gore. Like go back to like George H.W. Bush. It happened. Like conservatives wanted him, uh, wanted Reagan to ditch him and, and appoint Jack Kemp as his running mate for the 1984 campaign. And so uh, the other thing that that's worth noting here is no one is actually talking about this. Uh, like I, I've yet to see like an interview with a normie voter out there, like a Democrat. And that's the point, like running mates and vice presidents in a reelection, their job is to rally the base. Like their job is not to set the message. Like Joe Biden is going to be on the ballot, not Kamala Harris. And like Joe Biden could appoint Gretchen Whitmer or Karen Bass or Gavin Newsom or somebody instead. But at the end of the day, it's going to be Biden's name against Trump, DeSantis, or whoever else. And Kamala is actually liked by Democrats. 84% of Democrats, according to CBS News, are either satisfied or enthusiastic with Kamala Harris. Her numbers among Gen Z and millennials are actually pretty good. Like people don't talk about that. Like young people like fascinated Kamala by Harris. That. Yeah, like that's a that's a something someone in the White House told me that I actually wasn't aware of. And I, you know, I work for Snapchat. I think about Gen Z a lot. There are just these assumptions about Kamala Harris that aren't really borne out by Democratic based voters. She's more popular among young people than Joe Biden is. Um, And that's not to mention black voters and and black women. Look, her numbers could be better. Biden's could be better. And her numbers are tied to the president's like any vice president's. Uh, And like if Biden's popularity goes up, she'll always you know, she's going to trail him by a few points. She's (laughs) very disliked, like intensely by Republicans. But getting reelected is Joe Biden's problem to solve. And I just think that like getting rid of Kamala Harris on the ticket, there's so many risks involved that would come off as weak for Biden. He would look indecisive. It would seem petty. I think punishing effectively the first uh, vice president of color would hurt him badly uh, among voters of color. It just doesn't seem like anything that's going to happen. It hasn't happened since Gerald Ford kicked Rockefeller off the ticket, you know, back in the, in Watergate times, it just doesn't happen. And so I think it's just a silly thing that pundits are talking about right now because, you know, sort of end of summer, post labor day, looking at the campaign. If you don't want to cover Capitol Hill, the Republican race is actually kind of boring. 
here's something to write about. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious why you said that. Do you think you think that these columnists are actually like doing the bidding of some of Kamala's enemies? <laughs> no, but I do think that there has been a conversation inside of Washington. And it, I, I, I don't think it happened once they were sworn in because like people were not socializing in Washington. But I think it was just sort of decided six months in she wasn't good. And it wasn't necessarily something that was written down. And I just think it has infiltrated. And I've, hmm. I have I mean, she has had weak interviews at certain points, but it just doesn't yeah. it has never struck me as meeting the cool kids table discussion inside of Washington about her. But I do. I mean, I have seen a history of the Democratic Party, particularly with women just dumping on them. And it's something that I don't see out of the Republicans in this way. And so I, I do kind of question the public relations in and I, I'm not a White House you know, observer, but the public relations rollout of Kamala Harris is the first female and uh, woman of color vice president um, and the, the challenges that that were presented there. Yeah, I think, look, Kamala's got her shortcomings. I've written about them. They're apparent. Uh, and she certainly has probably some former colleagues in the Senate who would rather they be <laughs> vice president than her. Well, and I I. David Ignatius was on Morning Joe last week, and he was met with a ferocious response from Claire McCaskill that I hadn't quite yeah. seen out of her in a long time. And I think it's important to remember they were colleagues and mm -hmm. Kamala Harris is a creature of the Senate. So she actually has allies over there. I mean, I just think that mm -hmm. the, I think you're right. I think this is so risky and so many uh, opportunities to piss people off that um, very powerful people, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just it, it would be unprecedented. It goes against Biden's political instincts in every way. He's a cautious, institutional oriented guy. It's not going to happen is my punctuation mark on that. But for more of my rationale, please go to Puck and uh, read my piece and read Abby's reporting in the best and the brightest going out every Monday. Abby, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.